3, Ephesians chapter 3, and um, Josie's going to come and she's going to read this passage for us, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, through the end, let's stand together as we read, okay, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What, a, what an incredible passage of scripture this is. Um, I personally have, um, although I've read and preached from Ephesians uh, a number of times, um, going through it like this has been a, a real joy because we were able to see things in a way maybe you wouldn't normally see it. And um, I'm really thankful for uh, the fact that God has placed um, this book in the context of our time together here. And um, so I, just, I would just ask that even though um, we're, we're studying a prayer here that we would not um, tune out, that we would tune in. Uh, even as some of the guys in their testimonies shared the importance of prayer, when you think about to whom you are speaking when you are praying, um, we need to take this seriously. And So let's just pause for a moment and let's go to God in prayer and let's let the, the weight of, of that reality settle in. Lord, we are humbled that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and speak, Lord, directly to you and that you would hear us and that you want to hear us. And Lord, we today want to place ourselves under your guidance and under your care and under your purposes and you want to teach us and you want to mold us and shape us, Lord, through your word and by your spirit to be like your son Jesus Christ and Lord today uh, individually and then as a church Lord would you have your way with us would you allow your Holy Spirit to 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 minister in ways that would be encouraging that would be convicting that would be um, strengthening Lord so that wherever we are and whatever we're we're wrestling with right now Lord you would have your way and we would be satisfied not because of things that we're doing but because of everything that you are and everything that you're doing in us. Oh, Lord, we, we need you desperately and Lord, as a church, we need you. We, we are nothing without you and so Lord, today, allow your word to become alive and allow your messenger simply to open his mouth and that you would be glorified. We ask in your precious name, amen. How do you normally pray? Maybe the question should be, for what do you normally pray? What tends to be the content of your prayers? Maybe it's a friend who's sick, and so you're praying for them to get well. I think we all pray prayers like that. Maybe it's a family member who is taking a test. It's at school, maybe. Uh, maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at the DMV. Um, and so you remember to ask God to help them in their time of need. Maybe you're going on a trip and you're praying that, that God would give you wisdom and discernment and, and uh, opportunity as you plan your trip and then while you're on that trip that you would have safety and there wouldn't be any problems. And maybe you're, you're praying about finances because money is short or, or maybe you're praying about the fact that you don't have much and so what you do have, you want, it, you want it to kind of spread out through the week. And so you're going to God asking for his will to be done in those things. And, and all of those have a rightful place in our prayer. We should be praying for those things. 
But friends, do you ever pray for God's glory to be done in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever? That is what we find here at chapter 3 and verse 21. This is how he ends this prayer. That God's glory would be done in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Do we find ourselves in that prayer? Absolutely. We are benefiting from what Paul has been praying for here for the Ephesians and then for the church in general that the glory of God would be, uh, would be carried out in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. And so friends, oftentimes our prayers drift toward, might want to say, the, the physical struggles that we have because we live in those places. You know, we have, you know, necks that hurt and hips that hurt and knees that hurt and heads that ache and throats that are sore and all that kind of stuff. That's where we live. Those are, those are realities. And it's much easier for us to go to God in prayer about those things. It's much more difficult for us to go to God about the spiritual struggles and the spiritual pursuits that we have. Now, Although we focus oftentimes on that physical well-being, what is happening here in this passage is Paul is praying now for the Ephesian church, and then ultimately it is a model prayer for us as we pray for ourselves and for our church, and it's a prayer that is focusing on our spiritual walk. It's focusing on the health of the church. It's focusing on the church local as well as the church global. And friends, there needs to be a balance in our prayers. Yes, it is right. We are commanded to bring our requests to him when we have struggles and needs. But he also wants us to dwell with him in spiritual realities, about our spiritual condition, about our our struggles with sin, and about what we desire to be because we are in Christ by his grace and with his help. And so this passage we have here is is actually a hinge passage or a a transition kind of a passage. It is a passage that that takes us from the the, the deep theology of chapter 1, 2, and that first part of 3 to the the application of 4, 5, and 6. But we don't just want to relegate it and say it's just a hinge. You know, hinges are there for a reason. Hinges take us from one place to another. There's a movement going on, and there's something significant taking place in this passage to help us move from all this theological truths that he has presented to us to where now he wants us to live. For us to understand who we are in Christ and what what he's called us to be and the actual being what he's called us to be. So there are basically two truths then that we find in chapters 1 through 3, and I kind of mentioned them there, who we are, that's what he's focusing on, that's our our identity, and our identity is in Christ. And the the second truth is what have they or what have we become because we are in Christ, and we have become his workmanship, we have become his church. So the question is, who are they? They are the workmanship, once dead in our transgressions and sins, but made alive by the grace of God. We are his church, once alienated from God, but reconciled by the blood of Christ. Now the question is this. What have they been created for? It's one thing to be identified with Jesus. It's one thing to be called his workmanship. It's one thing to be called his church, And he tells us, you are my workmanship. And he tells us, you are my church. But, okay, that's great. But what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Well, let's think through that a little bit. They were made alive as his workmanship so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace 
and so that we would produce good works. So I'm looking at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, and chapter 2, verse 10. Here are some so that passages. So you are God's workmanship made alive to show the riches of his grace. You're not just his workmanship. You're his workmanship with a purpose. So chapter 2, verse 7 says, to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Chapter 2, verse 7, or verse 10 says, and so that we would produce good works. Now he's not commanded us to do anything yet. He's just saying, this is what I've created you for. This is what this workmanship is going to do. And then the Jews and the Gentiles were reconciled to God in the church so that, chapter 3, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So the church here is reconciled and called to make known the wisdom of God. Now just pause, friends. You are, if you're a child of God, called his workmanship, and then collectively we are called the church. And you, as his workmanship, are called to what? Show the riches of his grace, to make it known. As the church, we're called to make known the wisdom of God. That's a pretty weighty responsibility, wouldn't you say? And he's taken time to lay the foundation to say, you know what, there's this big plan of redemption that I've laid out for you, chapter one. Chapter two, here's, the, here's this passage that tells you about how you were dead and I, you know, I, I, I made you alive and created you to be my workmanship, how you were alienated, but I drew you to myself, reconciled you, and now out of that created this one man, the church. But we're not just stopping there as those creations. Let me summarize it this way. God has, by grace and through the blood of the cross, created his people and his church to be the beacon through which he might show the immeasurable riches and the magnificence of his wisdom to the world. Now, it seems like an impossible task. How in the world can I reflect the riches of God's glory. How in the world are people going to look at me and see the wisdom of God on display? Now remember, the church at Ephesus was not a mighty army force. They were once, uh, I should say, they were just simply normal people from all walks of life that were called, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and given an inheritance they were former Jews and Gentiles. Um, and we, we saw in, in Acts chapter 19 that some of them who were living in the shadow of the darkness of the temple of Artemis, there, who were involved in, in magic, gathered their books together and rather than make a profit, just burned them. So these were serious believers in a pagan context who were living out the, the, the gospel and being the church as best they could, but they were, they were no special group. And they were living in the context of a pagan and lewd religion that practiced all sorts of magic and worshiped idols, and many of them. So how, how could this rabble and seemingly insignificant people ever be the vehicle God would want to use? And of course, that begs the question, how could God use us as simple, run-of-the-mill people to reflect his glory and his wisdom and his riches and even to do good works? How in the world is that going to take place? Well, we have to ask ourselves the same questions. Do we know who we are in Christ? I mean, do we know? Is it just kind of a label that's thrown out there? Okay, yeah, I'm this workmanship, fine. Or do we recognize that that idea of workmanship, that, that, that means it reaches back before creation where God has been at work accomplishing his purposes and he has created you unique and for his glory and for his purpose? Do you recognize that, that as his church, 
We're, we're called his church, not simply because it happened, and he's like, well, I think I'll give it a name. No, we are the called out ones. That's what the word ecclesia means. We are called out of darkness. We are called into light. We are his body. We are his family. This is his creation. And do we know what he is doing through us? He is showing us, or showing the world, I should say, the incredible riches of his grace through us, through you. He's showing the world his wisdom through us, through you. Now I'm laboring on this to, to really help us understand the impact of what Paul is saying. It's not just a history lesson, friends. If you were to read through the book of Ephesians with a highlighter and highlight every time it says in Christ, you're going to find there's lots of highlighting going on. He's trying to establish us in a place being in Christ. That is our identity. But that identity is followed up with a purpose. Now friends, this is a, a daunting reality. It is one thing for God to say, this is who you are. It's another thing to say, because of who you are in Christ, this is what I have called you to. How in the world can you, can you expect from us, or for us, to do what, what you have called us to do, we might be thinking. And I think, I think we, we often feel that way. And this is the question that Paul is seeking to, to, to answer as he comes to the Father in prayer. The seeming impossible task of being the church becomes possible through an understanding of the power of God that is expressed through the love of Christ. So Paul now returns to what he started in chapter, or chapter 3, verse 1, if you remember. He begins to pray for the Ephesian believers, but I want you to notice the structure, first of all, of, of our text. It's going to divide into three sections. Uh, this is not how your, your, your outline necessarily flows out, but I want you to notice, first of all, Paul's posture, verses 14 and 15, Paul's prayer, verses 16 through 19, and then God's promise, um, verses 20 and 21. There's a structure going on, and one kind of leads into the other. So just, just note that. And then secondly, I want you to notice the key words um, of power and strength that are in this passage. There are actually three different words that are used in a translated power or strength um, in this text. There's strengthened, there's power that's used two times, and there's another word that means have strength. And so th this is a prayer for power and strength for the church to be what God has called it to be. And so as we come to this passage, what we want to be asking ourselves is this. How is it that we can be what God wants us to be? And the answer to that question is, we must learn the power and we must embrace the power and the strength that God has given the church to be the church. Now go back to chapter 1 and verse 19. We saw this in this big picture, uh, and, then, and then his prayer after that big picture in, in, in verse 19. Paul says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? There is this power that God has that is being and has been and continues to be disseminated to all of his children. And we are to live in that power. And we're to pursue Christ in that power. And we're to be the church in that power. So as we begin then today, let's think about what I'm calling uh, our worship of this powerful father. We worship a powerful father. For this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason. Again, what is the reason for Paul's prayer? Paul's referring back to the content of the whole letter. All that he shared. This big picture of salvation and redemption. These pictures of who we are in Christ. What he has done. What we've now become. All of this is the basis now of his prayer. And first I want you to notice um, his humility. He says, I bow on my knees before the Father. Now bowing was not your normal 
Jewish approach to God. They typically stood as they prayed. But he bows on his knees, and this is certainly a, an act of humility before the Father. Who we are and what God has called us to is a daunting reality and brings us to the place that we recognize that we cannot do it by ourselves. We need his help. And so Paul here is saying, listen, this is, this is a wonderful reality. It's, it's also a very daunting reality, and I, I am bowing before the Father in humility for the church, for the people specifically at Ephesus, but we can say also for the rest of the church throughout the ages. And so there's this need for humility as we have this great privilege of coming to the throne of grace. Secondly, I want you to notice holiness, and I'm pulling that from the word Father. And here's, here's how, I'm, how I'm getting there. It says, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The title Father is, a, is not simply a, a title that's given to someone, it's, it's a, a description of, uh, of someone who is in a position of intimacy, as well as dignity, as well as authority. And it's the Father who is in heaven. And we, we know a prayer that Jesus gave with that. Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. So here we have a, a holy Father that is over the church. He's over the family in heaven and on uh, earth. And, and, and this is what he is doing. He, he sought out uh, and seeks out the good for his family. He also rules them. This is what a father does. He, he is always looking out for the good of his family. If you're a father in this room today, you're looking for the good for your family, for your wife, for your children. That is part of your heart's desire. But you're also seeking to rule them, keeping order, keeping direction, keeping things together, Okay? So this is, this is how he functions as, as a father. And so this father, uh, when we were once far off, has drawn us near to him. So we were once distant from this father, and now by virtue of the cross and by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near. And so as his children, we can come before him with boldness and confidence, chapter 3, verse 12, and also through the cross now, we have access in one spirit to the Father, chapter 2, verse 18. So Paul bows before this holy God boldly, confidently, because he has access to him, and he is appealing for this church that God has created to manifest the riches of his grace, the wisdom of, uh, of God, as well as this, this call to do good works but he does it in humility, pleading for that church. And so ultimately he is pleading for, and this last word here, is, is help. And notice again it says here in verses 14 and 15, the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So the father here is naming all of these different people. And, and, and this, this idea of name here refers to the depths of, uh, of our nature, it's, it's a word that describes our, our inner being, it's a word that describes our significance that is only found because we are in him. And the point here is this, that he's praying for the Father to actually um, have influence in us, whom he has recreated, whom he has now indwelled by his Holy Spirit. He has entered into us, and, and his Holy Spirit now takes residence in us. We are his. We are named by him. And so uh, when we pray for Christians, we, we, we don't pray saying necessarily, um, you know, if the Lord wills, because we, in this context, know exactly what God is doing in them. He is in the business of making them to be more like Jesus. We don't say, Lord, would you please would you please make this person to be more like Jesus if it be your will? Well, no, we don't say that. Why? Because we know it is his will, right? It is his will to grow us to be like Christ. Secondly, um, it is his will that we live and serve and suffer like he does and like he did. It's no surprise to a Christian if you're suffering, and if you're suffering in particular because of your faith. That's what Jesus did. So with these prayers, 
like I said, we don't pray if it be your will. We pray for ourselves and for other Christians that God would do what he said he would do in and through us to make us the church he wants us to be. So friends, it's important that that we recognize as we've gone through these chapter one, chapter two, and now the first part of chapter three, that as Paul comes to pray, he's saying, saying, Father, I want the church that you have created before the creation of the world to be what you have called it to be. And I want these people to understand what they have been called to be. That was his first prayer. Now he wants them to actually apply who they are in Christ so that they will act out and behave and and be the church that he has created them to be. He's pointing them to this application. This is the hinge, moving not just from the knowledge of the theology of it, but now to the practical side of the working of it out. And that's what we have in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a person of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The calling with which you have been called is chapter 1 through 3. Who you are in Christ, what he's making you to be, and now all these implications that are there. And he's going to get into some specifics. Okay? And friends, this is, this is our goal. It is our goal to, to be a people who accept who we are in Christ and desire to discover our identity in him more and more as we grow up into him. And I'll just step back and just emphasize one more time. One of your endeavors, one of your life's endeavors is to grow in your understanding of the character and the nature of God. A.W. Tozer said the most important thing that you, the, the most important thing in your life is, is what you think about God because what you think about God is going to affect then how you think about everything else. If you have a distorted view of God, you're going to have a distorted view of the church, you're going to have a distorted view of life. And it, it's, it begins, friends, by having a right understanding of who God is. We also want to be a people who are faithfully doing what God has called his church to be doing. Let me just kind of maybe paint a picture here. Imagine there's this, this little boy who, who's grown up following soccer. He loves Real Madrid, and so all his life, he's, he has Real Madrid posters all over his room. He watches Real Madrid games on his TV and on his computer now, and every time there's an opportunity, he's watching. And as he's grown up, he's played soccer, he's learning soccer, he's growing in his soccer ability, and his goal in life is to one day wear the Real Madrid uniform. And, you know, over time, um, incredibly so, um, he is brought onto the Real Madrid roster. And he's given his uniform. And so he gets his uniform and, and he, he puts it on and he starts going down into town and says, look, I, I play for Real Madrid. I'm a player for Real Madrid. But friends... He hasn't played the game yet. He just has a shirt on. He may have a contract. He has a shirt on, but he hasn't gotten into the game. Okay? And okay, one day, a, a day comes, and he is not only on the roster, but he's on the lineup, and he's a substitute, and he has his time to get on the field. And when he gets on the field, he recognizes, I have a Real Madrid shirt on, and I have the, I have the whole uniform, and and look, the ball's coming to me. And when the ball comes to him, he starts to do all these fancy tricks and footworks and impressing the crowd and all that kind of stuff. And it's all about him. He doesn't care about scoring a goal. All he cares about is looking good in his uniform. Now, I'm trying to paint a picture here, and that's this. We have identity in Christ. We are called his children. We're called believers. We are called the church. But our purpose and our point is not simply to put the uniform on. Our purpose is to put the uniform on and to get into the game that he has called us to be in. It's not just to walk around and say, look how nice this uniform is. It's nice and white and pure and clean. No, it's, it's a nice uniform that has a purpose. He's created you to be the church. He wants you now to be the church in what you do. And it's in what you do that you disseminate this beautiful picture of the wisdom of God and the riches of his glory and his grace. So friends, that is 
our goal. So we worship a powerful Father in humility because he is holy, who is the only source of our help, who has actually changed us in our name. Secondly, we offer a powerful prayer. We offer a powerful prayer, and I want you to just notice this, this incredibly powerful prayer. It divides into two parts. The first one is this, a prayer for spiritual strength. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, and so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now it begins here by saying, according to the riches. Well, what are the riches? That's what we've been looking at the last couple of chapters. All these things that God has been doing for us. So based on these truths, based on these doctrinal realities, these promises, they undergird the strengthening of us in our inner man. It is on the basis of those spiritual blessings that Paul tells us that we will find our strength in our inner being. First of all, this is a strength to face suffering, trials, and temptations. This is the same kind of of trials and suffering and temptation that Jesus faced, that that, that Jesus endured, that he, he struggled with. Jesus asked, if you remember in the garden, if it if it's possible, take this cup away from me, let it pass. But he knew it was a question that only had one answer. That was no. He knew he had to press on. He knew what he had come to do. And as the church, God has created us to be then his church. And in order for us to do that, we need to have strength in our inner being. Friends, it's the cry of our human heart to ask for relief when we're suffering, when we're going through a trial, is it not? And yet, God may, for his glory and for his purpose, have us in that kind of a place. But that same heart, like Jesus, fights through the pain, fights through the difficulty of that trial, and agonizes to pursue the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. And that should be our mantra, too. There's a second way or part of this prayer that is important here. This is, this is a prayer for, for strength to exercise faith in obedience to his word. Strength to exercise faith in obedience to his word. Let's just read that little section again there. That according to the riches of his glory, so this is the foundation, this is what's feeding now um, this, this strengthening in the inner man. He may grant you to be strengthened with, with power through his spirit in your inner being. So it's a strength to face suffering and temptation. It's a strength also to exercise faith in obedience to his word. When God speaks and when he gives counsel, do we listen to it? Even though it may be difficult, are we willing to obey it? And Paul has laid some some doctrinal truths out for us, a doctrinal foundation. And he's preparing his readers, like I said, for application. Let's just think through some of the application that's, that's just around the corner. How do Christians live their lives for God? How do husbands love their wives? How do wives submit to their husbands? How do children obey their parents? How do parents avoid provoking and and focus instead on training and instruction? How do slaves relate to their masters in the Lord? How do masters in the Lord um, relate to their slaves? Uh, Just a few of the topics that are going to be covered in the next few chapters, but how do we do that is based on the strength that is given to us by the Spirit in our inner being. And so he's praying now that as he presses on and reveals these application truths, that we would be obedient to what is being said, that we would have strength to exercise faith in obedience to his word. Because these are weighty matters, and we need strength, and the only kind of strength that is helpful for us is the strength that only God can give. We're strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And so he gives us the strength we need, strength and power through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is at work in our inner being. The inner being, of course, is the arena of our hearts. 
Now friends, this is important as we, as we go to passages, and just turn in Ephesians to a couple of passages. Look at chapter four and verse 30. Chapter four, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, our awareness that the Holy Spirit is the one that is, that is dwelling us, that is, that is uh, guiding us, or that is actually bringing this strength to our inner being, gives us a little insight as to what it means to grieving the Holy Spirit. I don't want your strength. I don't want your counsel. I don't want your guidance here right now for this. Look at chapter five, verse 18. Chapter five, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now this does not mean like, you know, you're totally out of control. No, that's, that's never the nature of the Holy Spirit presented in the scripture. But what we have here is the Holy Spirit who is filling us, who's, who's feeding us, who's nurturing us, who's strengthening us in our inner being. And so we want him now to control our inner being. That's the point of this passage. Don't be drunk with wine, but allow the Holy Spirit to be the one that fills you and controls you. And look also at chapter 6 and verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance. To be praying in the Spirit is not some kind of a angelic prayer or some kind of a mystical prayer. It is a prayer that is the result of the Spirit's work of strengthening you in your inner being. That's how this is used in the context of Ephesians. And friends, in order for us to effectively do or effectively be what God wants us to be as his church, we must recognize that there is this power that is available to us by faith that comes by means of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And when we are humble before God to be obedient to his word, um, he is at work through the Holy Spirit who is at work then in us. Now, Notice back in our passage here, there's a so that, okay? There's a so that going on. So let's go, go back to chapter three and look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that, so here's the ultimate goal, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love Okay, that's gonna actually take off to the next section. But so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the goal. This is the goal of the Spirit's activity that ultimately Christ would dwell in your heart. You say, well, what does that mean? I know the Holy Spirit dwells in me, but how does Christ dwell in me? Well, interesting that the word dwell here um, is not talking about a temporary dwelling. It's not talking about an alien dwelling, something that, that, that doesn't belong dwelling in there. It literally means a dwelling in a sense that Jesus Christ has found his home in us. He is dwelling in the sense of setting down and making a place that is a permanent residence in us. And this is kind of like a, an ongoing activity. This is an ongoing reality. Let me try to let me explain what at least what I'm saying here, what I believe the scripture is saying here. The Holy Spirit is the one that dwells in us. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit as soon as we're saved. Okay? Boom. That's what happens to us. We come together then as worshipers, and we are called the temple of God. We saw that already. But now the Holy Spirit helps us to be strengthened in our inner being by faith so that. Christ may dwell in us. And so as we come to, to, to the Lord uh, by faith in salvation, we come and we embrace him as Lord and Savior. He's been drawing us to himself, but there are still areas in our lives that we may not have surrendered to him, if you want to use those terms. There are places that maybe we still are saying, okay, I know you're master, but I'm really struggling to let you in. And he's saying, I want to come and dwell. And so the word of God is presented 
And for us, the word of God must be received. And the Holy Spirit then is the one that gives us strength to receive that word of God so that the Lord Jesus Christ can come into our very being in every area of our heart and and reside there. And friends, this is a lifelong reality. Your life is, is a life of allowing the Holy, the Holy Spirit to be the agent to give you strength so that when you're confronted with the word of God and you're obedient to it, you're making more room for Christ to dwell in your heart. Okay, now just, I realize that there, there are concepts here, that there's language here that might seem like it crosses over. The Holy Spirit indwells us fully, completely. But the picture here is that that not all of Christ necessarily has been applied in every area of our lives. And so we're, we're moving here from what's called positional salvation, the, the moment of my salvation, to this progressive sanctification, becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so as I progress toward Christ-likeness, I am allowing Christ to actually dwell in me in greater ways because I'm being obedient to the Holy Spirit that is working in me through his word. So ultimately, Christ wants to be at home in us. Now, you know what it's like. You have people coming over to your house, and there are certain rooms you don't want them to go in, right? And there are certain drawers you don't want them to open, all right? And so sometimes you're like, okay, I'll be great. You know, let's lock these rooms up and make sure everything's thrown in the room, right? Don't go in my garage, you know, whatever it might be. No. With Christ coming to dwell, he is seeking to dwell in every area. And that means we're going to have a lifelong process of, of, of working on uh, issues in our lives that would, that would hinder his, his activity and his full reality in our lives. And that's why as we move into to, to the application section of Ephesians, there's a whole chapter there on the put-offs and the put-ons. And that's the whole process of, of allowing Christ to dwell in those areas. You struggle with pride, he wants that pride, he wants that place, he wants that, that worship. He wants to be fully and totally dwelling in that, in that house that is, your, that is your heart. Now let's move on to the next one. First of all, there's a prayer for spiritual strength. There's also a prayer for love's comprehension. And notice what it says here, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a lot of things that are being said there. Uh, and so let's, let's work through them just kind of one step at a time. What is, what is the love that Paul is speaking of here. All right, it's the love of Christ. Um, we would say that it is our spiritual blessings, God's will, his purposes, his good pleasure demonstrated to us. That all comes from chapter one. These are words that describe God's heart, his will, his love toward us. It is through the shedding of his blood on the cross that the following fruit of his love is seen in us. And this, again, pulls from chapter one, his election, his predestination, our adoption, um, redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, and then that promised inheritance. Those are all an evidence, they're the fruit of his love at work in us. And so Paul is paying, uh, praying that God uh, would give us help to understand this love of Christ that has been showered toward us. Now, the problem is that we don't all comprehend that love. We struggle with that love. In fact, we live in a, we live in a country and in a culture where love of God is, is so superficial. And yet, God wants to take us into deeper places to understand what that love is and what that love is doing in us. And so let's take a moment to, to, to work through this passage and to seek that. And so I want you to notice, first of all, what I'm calling Um, I want you to see love's nature, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Here are two images that help us understand how love is at work in us. First of all, it's rooted. Love is a a root that nourishes us, right? So tapped into the, the rich resources of God's spiritual blessings, we are nourished and fed and find our strength. 
That's all, his love. When, when you're going through a trial and you can say, you know what, this suffering I'm experiencing right now is just a, it's just a blip on this big picture of God's plan of redemption that I happen to be a part of right now, and I have the promise of an inheritance. It's love to have that as your spiritual blessing that feeds your life. That's love. And it's tapped into these wonderful spiritual resources to help us get perspective and to help us understand what he's called us to and how we are to live. Secondly, it's grounded. Love is a foundation that supports us. So this is a construction term that tells us that the the weighty doctrines Paul has revealed for us and the following examples um, of of change, that would be the, the, the dead to workmanship, the alienated to the, the church, their, their love support structure for living for his, gro- his glory. So you and I are what we are because of Christ's love for us, but you can now be what he has called you to be because of the nourishment and the support of that same love that is at work now and, and undergirding us and, and, and nurturing us. So that's that first one. See, loves, nurture. Secondly, grasp, loves, extent. Talking here about love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, height, and the depth. Here's where love permeates us. His love is, is there in every aspect of our lives, every area, every struggle, every trial, every burden that we experience. And it's especially something that is seen in us that we recognize during times of trial, suffering, temptation, or sorrow. Love permeates our inner being to manifest itself. Now, there is a, a story that um, James Boyce tells of a prisoner that was found during the Napoleonic campaigns when they came to a particular prison that was a place where the Spanish Inquisition would hold people and they went into this dungeon way down deep and they found this man who was chained um, by his ankle. Of course, he he had deceased. He basically was, you know, a skeleton um, but there was a chain around his ankle. But on the wall, he had scraped on the wall a cross. And it was in Spanish. Above the cross, he wrote in Spanish, height. On the bottom, he put depth. On the left, he put breadth. All right, and then he, on the right, he put length. And, and the, point, the point is that through his suffering, he was able to experience and understand love in a greater way than he would understand without that suffering. You talk to many people who have gone through times of difficulty, they are able to comprehend the love of God and the love of Christ in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise. But there is this incredible reality that that God has, has given us his love and he wants us to comprehend it in our life. Now, as the church and as his workmanship, is gonna be a life that is gonna be constantly growing in our awareness of his love toward us. Then we also want to experience love's greatness. Love's greatness. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now the word here, know, is the word gnosko. And it's, it's a word of, of knowledge that just doesn't, doesn't mean head knowledge. It means a knowledge by means of experience. So it's not just knowing about love. It means experiencing the greatness of God's love. A love that surpasses our understanding standing or our knowledge. In other words, times when God's love has been demonstrated to you in abundance in ways that you did not even imagine could be true. So he's praying that this would be a reality in their lives. They would experience this this great love. Of course, there's that song many of you know. The love of God. Here's the 
Here's one of the stanzas. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. His love is, is incre- so incredibly great that we have a hard time wrapping our hands around understanding it and, and what he could do. And, and sometimes our view of God is so small that we don't expect him to do things that would be a lavish display of his love. And so he's praying that they would grow in their understanding of that. And then the fourth thing here is this last part, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Anyone here filled with the fullness of God? So I don't know. I don't know what that means, right? I mean, it's kind of a strange expression, right? That you'd be filled with the fullness of God. And what it's talking about here, this is, this is not a one-time thing. He's praying this at the end. This is actually kind of a, a ladder of things that are working their way up. And this ultimately is the goal. The goal then would be at the end of their life, they would be filled with the fullness of God. So this would be the same thing as saying that we, we, I'm praying that they would grow to become more like Jesus Christ day by day. Grace upon grace upon grace, just stepping toward Christ-likeness, exercising themselves toward godliness, being more mature in Christ. Same kind of expression. This is all the result of love. And so, friends, these these two realities are what God has, um, what I should say, what Paul is praying specifically for the Ephesian church. Look at all these spiritual blessings. Look at what you were. Look at what I've done. Look what I've created you to be. Now, the reality is I've created you to be these things so that you can be displayed and that through that display, my wisdom would be made known and the riches of my glory would be made known. <laughs> and we're asking ourselves, and how do you plan on doing that specifically? And this is where we must embrace what I'm calling a powerful promise. You might be tempted to say as we've gone through this passage, this all seems a little hard to believe. How can God, through the mess that is going on in my life or in my marriage or in my family, ever display God's wisdom? Have you seen the struggles that I have in my life? Have you, have you seen the conflict in my family? Have you seen how my marriage is failing? Have you seen my anger and my fear and my selfishness and my pride? There is no way that I could show the riches of his wisdom. You ever feel that way? I mean, there are other people. Oh, they're godly people. Hey, listen, godly people go home and they struggle with sin. Agreed? Because we all do. Now, some of our struggles might be dirtier than others, or I want to say um, noisier than others, or whatever it might be. But God has said here that He is going to make Himself known through us, through the church. And it doesn't mean the building, He means the people. How in the world is that going to take place? And so here we come to this, it's also called a doxology, verse 20. Now to him, talking about God, who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. Amen. Now, friends, if there's something that we can scream this morning, if there's something that you are just going to hold on to, if all you hold on to is this one promise that is given to us in this doxology here is this, that he is able. What he has called you to, he is able to do. If he has called you to be his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, he is able to see that through. When he's called you to be the church that he says is going to be making know the wisdom of God, he backs that up with himself and says, I am able to do this. But the reality is, he does this through sinful, 
struggling, hurting, suffering, children, us. A couple of things now. He is able, first of all, to do. He is able to do. He has the power. He has the resources. He is the one who not only created the world, but he also created the church. He also chose us before the creation of the world, and somehow he is working his sovereign, redemptive plan and ultimately brought his son to die on the cross for our sins and created this thing called the church, and we are now somehow weaving in that. He has his hands around all of that. It's just amazing. He's able to do all those things. And if he's able to do those things, don't you think he's able to do what he's already said he's promised to do? That through you, through your struggle, through your, even your sinfulness, that he is gonna bring glory to himself? Now notice as we continue on here, he's able to do what we ask. Oh, finally, there's something I get to do here. Yeah, you get to ask. Interestingly enough, though, James 4.3 says the problem is that we ask with wrong motives. <laughs> we have this great privilege to ask God for things, and what do we do with that? We blow it, and we ask him things for selfish purposes rather than for God-centered purposes. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. says this, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, in other words, if we're at a place where our account with God has been settled, our conscience is clear, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. God does want us to come to him and ask him to do things or for him to accomplish things in us. Now certainly, we need to ask in a way that would be with right motives, that would be according to his will, but he is able to do what we ask him to do that would be in conformity to his will will and purpose. He can do that. Here's the next one. This, this, this is the one that kind of got me. He is able to do what we think, and that word think idea is imagine or dream. Now, I'm not getting hokey here, okay? I'm not saying, you know, you went to bed last night, you had a dream, and now you want God to do that dream. But the idea here is this. You know, you know how times, maybe you have a neighbor who's an unbeliever, and you're like, you know, I, I want to be able to share the gospel with them. And I'm thinking maybe if I do this and if I do this, or maybe, maybe there's some way that that can happen. You're, you're, what are you doing? You're imagining, you're dreaming, you're, you're planning, you're thinking. He is able to do those things that you are imagining, that you are thinking. In other words, go to him and say, God, I don't know how this is gonna happen. I know that you, you've called me to, to, you know, to be a faithful neighbor or to be a faithful friend or in this conversation to, to bring, uh, bring your gospel to bear. And I, I'm imagining how it's gonna play out. And so you go to him and you ask him and you ask what you have been imagining and trust that he will open those doors to do it. It's okay to go to God like that. Now, this is not some kind of a business endeavor where it's some kind of an imagination thing. We're talking about just practical living here where we care about people. Who knows what he might do? Who knows what God has in store for us? Who knows who lives, whose lives, sorry, might be affected because we're willing to come to God with our dreams and our imaginations that are all conformed to the will of God. And notice what else he says. And he is able to do it, what, in abundance. <laughs> He's able to do far more then we can ask or imagine. See, so, well, you're kind of moving into the charismatic realm. 
Rod. You know, you're trying to manipulate God. No, not going to manipulate God. There's no, if you look at if you study Ephesians, there's no manipulation of God going on at all. What there is is God saying, "I called you, I predestined you, I predestined you to be adopted as sons, and I have redeemed you. I have forgiven you. I've given you an inheritance. That's what I have been doing, and I did that, started that." before the creation of the world. Now, there's no way I'm going to be manipulating that process. And in that, he says, I've created you to be the church. I've created to be my workmanship. I am the one who's created you. I'm the one who's created the church. It's by my hand. It's by my plan. It's by the blood of my son that you are who you are today. And so when you come to me asking, and it's in accordance to my will, your asking is, in fact, part of the providence that I use to accomplish my purposes in your life. Dream your dreams. Ask your questions. Ask, you know, God, can you do such and such for me? And if it is conformed to your will and it's out of the motive of a right heart, it is part of his providence to accomplish his purposes through those prayers. And friends, it's not manipulating God. It's saying, God, you are God, but you are at work through the church, and I'm part of the church, which means that you are at work through me. So Lord, what are you going to do? <laughs> and how are you going to do it? And you may do it in a way that is way outside of my comprehension and way outside of my ability. And I don't know how in the world you're going to do it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All of this, friends, is so that God would be glorified in the church and in Christ. So friends, this, there's this, this, this deep theology, this, this in Christ theology, this identification theology that we have in chapter one through three that also tells us that there are some implications for that that now as we get into chapter four and following are gonna be the, the, the fuel and the foundation and the nourishment so that we can do what he's calling us to do, the practical things. And we need to be able to rest on that. We need to understand that. So as, as we close here, I just want to highlight just three things. First of all, and these are simply our, our mission and vision, um, is knowing. I just want to encourage you, friends, go back to chapter one through three and, and study it some more. Make sure you grasp this, this, this union with Christ language and the realities that are there. It is so important that we know God Secondly, we need to be thinking about then how does that apply? If that is true, if I am his workmanship, if I am his church and I have been created with a purpose, how do I flesh out that purpose in the context of where he's placed me? That is true for all of us. And part of that application then is going to flesh out into this last thing, and that's proclamation. That's what J.D. was saying in his testimony this morning. It's not just a matter of living my life in front of people. There are, there are times when we need to open our mouths and use words. We proclaim the truth of God. We proclaim the gospel of God. We proclaim the, the wonderful blessings that we have received, not tangible blessings, but spiritual blessings because of this union with Christ. Friends, think about that. Begin to think about those three words. And, you know, in fact, every time, you know, there's a message or there's a lesson, these words resonate with, with things that we need to be thinking about, things that we need to be doing, ways in which we can, be, we can uh, take these, these passages and, and we can put them to work. Do you know God? Is there more that you need to know? And are you at work applying what you know about him to your life? And are you opening your mouth and declaring it, not only to others outside the church, but even to those who are in the church who need encouragement, who need strength, who need direction. Lord, help us today to pray like Paul prays. Lord, not that we need to use the same words, but Lord, that, that he's resting 
on this power that comes only from you to give strength in the inner man, to give counsel to our understanding of your love, to help us recognize, Lord, that you are able, but in your ability, you also call us to take responsibility, to be faithful, Lord, to the things you've called us to. And Lord, the great privilege that you are through us, struggling, sinful, dirty us, you are making your wisdom known and you are declaring the riches of your grace. It's hard for us to comprehend, Lord, but help us to fall in love with that reality and to seek to live it out for your glory. We ask in your name, amen.